Hello and welcome to another episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today I'll be conducting a conversation with a young British conductor who was born and raised in my home city of Birmingham. His career has taken him from positions at the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra all across the UK and Europe and on to being a principal conductor in Parma, Italy. I'm very pleased to welcome Alpes Chohan. Welcome, Alpesh. How lovely to hear from you. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. I wonder whether you could tell us about your very earliest musical experiences. Um, when, I, when I was at school, age six, there were many different teachers and different instruments who used to come into school assemblies to try and drum up support and uh, interest. And one day a cello teacher came along and that same day I, I wound up going home with a cello um sort of on my back i was so short by then uh, at that at that age and going home with this instrument that my parents had never seen or heard of before um still remember going home and my parents saying what the hell is that um it was a great start though because it was obviously something that had clicked in my head that i really wanted to play it with with none of it of course in my own family background um and my parents were were so nice about it i think that in in especially from my from my background as being from an indian family it wasn't so common um, for parents to to push for this kind of thing um, and because I had this passion and um, my parents did see something burning inside me so I was very lucky in that respect that they they went ahead with it as much as they could and they supported me as much as they could even though they didn't understand it at all. Uh, as I went along I, I played a lot in youth orchestras in Birmingham and um, it's one of the strongest cities as you know of course for um, youth music and with free music for youth um, with all the orchestra systems that they have, with the area orchestras and moving on to the Birmingham schools ensembles, um, which have always been quite well supported and always free for all the students who who take part. And that was where I, I really enjoyed my music making the most. It was from that that I then entered the Birmingham School Symphony Orchestra and the CUSO Youth Orchestra around around similar times, actually, which is where I met met you, of course, Mike, for the first time as you were conducting these ensembles and those those are the moments I really decided that this was what I wanted to do and and I wanted to uh, become a musician and take music further um in in Birmingham as I say the, the system was so strong so Birmingham School Symphony Orchestra were playing complete works and I've seen other other youth orchestras in different cities even who don't offer this kind of serious level of music making at that age when you're sort of 14 15 years old going upwards um, so serious concerts with top level soloists and great conductors as well. Um, and it was it was a great insight into this world, but also a great way for those of us who did want to take it further to really immerse ourselves into it. Um, and then the CBSO Youth Orchestra, of course, um, which is another level still. And you, I remember the chief executive, um, Stephen Maddock, always used to say they would only invite somebody to conduct the youth orchestra who they would be considering or having in the orchestra proper as well, in CBSO proper. So it meant that we did work with some, some really great people. Um, but aside from that, we were doing music, which it, it's not easy to perform all the time with a huge orchestra, um, and music that young people really wanted to play. Um, and aside from that, it was musicians who really wanted to do it as well, because it was in their half-term holidays, in the times that they could be going out and playing football or going to the cinema with their mates instead. Um, so this was a great a great period of mine when when growing up and and deciding that this was what I wanted to do. At this early stage, obviously, I first met you as a cellist, but were you at any point thinking about conducting at all? It was when I was in Birmingham School Symphony Orchestra that I started looking at conductors at the, at the front um, and thinking, hmm, I, I never had the never had the guts to actually speak to them and speak to them about it. But at school, at the same time, I started conducting just just for fun with friends in the in the school wind ensemble and brass ensembles at school, and uh, that was that was a nice insight into it. Although I had no clue what I was doing, and just sort of learning what I could from watching and from playing in orchestras. And in BSSO, I used to be on the front desk at the time, which meant I, I had the the prime view of the conductor and everything that the conductor was doing. So I'd use those mornings of rehearsals to always just be obsessive in some ways and listen to the music, see the part that I was playing and see what the conductor was doing, why he was asking for various things. Um, and then it was when you came to BSSO that I really started forming a strong view, so 16, 17 years old, 
that I really wanted to have a go. And then very luckily I was offered to do the CBSO Youth Orchestra Academy conducting workshop, which I know two of two of my colleagues in the youth orchestra as well also have now gone on to be sort of we're all similar level sort of young early career conductors with Ben Jernan and uh, Jamie Phillips as well. Um, so that was a that was a great opportunity where conducting friends in the orchestra to get confidence, but also to just try your hand at it while being guided uh, with you with with Mike um, at the front, sort of giving us constructive feedback about what what we could do to help our technique to help achieve the things that we wanted to do through what we what we were showing, but also how to make it better from also what we say and how to rehearse and how to sort things out as well. Those sessions were the brainchild of myself and Richard Bratby, who was running the CBSA Youth Orchestra at the time, initially to give students a chance to play a movement of a concerto with their colleagues in the Youth Orchestra. And then we, we had, a, I think, in the first course, Ben Jernan asked if he could conduct. And from then on, every year, um, yourself and Jamie especially, who were in the orchestra at about the same time, concurrently, um, it, it just grew and grew and grew, and it's something we still do to this day. And I, it's very interesting to watch you and Jamie and Ben when you first stood in front of that orchestra. You were the three people I remember immediately thinking, hey, hang on, they've got something already, even if it's very raw, but it's a start. And it's proven to be a really popular thing in the summer course, not just the conducting, but also the concerto element. Everybody looks forward to it, and everybody's incredibly supportive. Yeah, I think that was that was the interesting thing because back then when you see it advertised, you think, okay, this is going to be great for me just to see what I wanted to do. But it was also quite incredible to see the support from the others. So we were, we were selfishly thinking for us, it's a great opportunity to do this. But also for your colleagues in the orchestra, it was great for them to see what, what a conductor did, how they did it, and to have the, the person coaching them through the whole course actually explaining why they do the things they do to a, to a budding young conductor at the same time. So there's a, there's a lot of appreciation. I mean, this goes through into uh, masterclasses with professional orchestras as well, that everyone does think initially it's for the conductors, of course, but the orchestra get as much out of it as the conductors do themselves. And, Absolutely, and we yeah. often yeah. get things from watching our colleagues. You know, I, I remember being at the Northern when I was studying and there, how much I would learn from from being on the box myself was was already quite amount but when I would sit back and then watch all my colleagues conduct and then see the feedback they got and why they got it that was when I really really learned by watching others. Yeah interesting I spent a two-week course studying with 14 other conductors with Yorma Pamela and I sure. sim and similarly I think I learned half the amount of stuff again by watching all of the other conductors, what he was saying to them, that I did in the limited period of time that I was actually on the podium. Yeah, you, at that age, you're a sponge. You just absorb everything exactly. thrown at you. Um, exactly. Would I be right in thinking that maybe the first time you conducted a symphony orchestra was when we were on tour with Birmingham School Symphony Orchestra, got to a very dry acoustic at the first venue, and I said to you, why don't you stand up and conduct this Nielsen Symphony while I go out and listen? I think so, actually. I think it was that, yeah. So, as you said, um, the cello was still a very, very big part of your life. And what was your next step with your cello? Well... I was very lucky because I had a cello teacher, your colleague, of course, Eduardo Vassalo, um, who's section leader of the CBSO cellos. And he was very encouraging because I, I went to the Northern to do a four-year uh, bachelor's degree on, on the classical cello, knowing full well that after that I would want to go into conducting, uh, whether that was through formal education or doing it an, another way. Immediately, having a teacher who was in an orchestra and was... A principal player of an orchestra as well it was really refreshing because he understood what my goals were and it didn't get to him at all i i know for a fact that there would have been many teachers teaching courses up and down the country who would find it difficult to to seriously get through the course knowing that the student's interest is somewhere else but with eduardo he he sort of tailored the lessons 
in an orchestral way. So he would he would bring excerpts, he would talk about excerpts, he would he would speak about how to make things better and his experience of an orchestra, of being in an orchestra, and how I could improve that from playing the cello better myself and learning various things. We we bypassed a lot of the normal cello repertoire that he would have done with other students because he really wanted to help me by understanding the, the orchestral repertoire and the way of working in an orchestra. Um, and this, I think, is one of the biggest the biggest advantages I had. Um, and I, I will always look back on that period. And when I am thinking in front of an orchestra, how to make a string passage better or how to think about a bowing, for example, I do think back to those lessons. And in fact, sometimes I even phone Eduardo and say, you know, this really difficult bit in, in, in so-and-so a piece. Um, what do you do there? Is, there? is there a way that you've, you know, do you have a, a trick for that? Um, and that was really helpful. So as you're coming towards the end of your four-year course with Eduardo learning the cello, what are your options going forwards? As I came to the end of the, the bachelor's, I was looking at conducting courses, of course. Um, before looking abroad, I had a, a cautionary glance abroad. Um, but the first thing I wanted to do was look in this country because we do have a, a strong set of courses in the UK. But I should mention before all of this, I was learning conducting through all of this, of course, as you know. From the moment that I took the conducting masterclass at 16, I was then from then on having lessons with you. Um, and then also at the Northern, um, which has a very strong conducting course, I, I would say one of the strongest, if not the strongest in the country, because it gives you much more time on the box conducting people rather than sat at a desk and that was so valuable so much new music to really nail the technique um, but just a lot of time whether it be an ensemble of five people or ten people um, just to conduct every week with people which is of course the most important part of it all and um, getting the experience hands-on. Was it a good split between working with groups of ensembles of instrumentalists and also the fabled and often derided uh, two pianos in a room yes i it was always i was always told that i was terrible i mean, they always used to say but i i knew it and my colleagues as well but i was i was terrible with pianos i'm a string player and i i grew up around the cbso and around this sound which lives and breathes it's not instant it's not as we say completely on the beat it's a sound that requires some time to breathe and then speak as one and this is very this is very difficult when you've got two pianos in front of you which is always going to be very direct so it was a good balance and in the end i had serious conversations with my with my teachers there mark heron and clark rundell um, because it was becoming a real challenge but they said look you know that when you're in front of an orchestra you're fine so you've just got to realize the goals of which you use the piano classes. So I just had to use the piano classes and change my mentality to using them for repertoire learning, less about the control, where some of my colleagues would use it more for control, more for using the stick to really guide every, every microsecond. But for me, it really wasn't working, whereas I knew in front of an orchestra, I could somehow guide that sound and somehow pull that sound with pianos it's very difficult to do this so I, I began using the pianos in a much more rudimentary way just to, to yeah. learn repertoire learn phrasing learn lengths of phrases and learn how to show lengths of phrases yeah because this kind of thing you can really show easily with pianos there's a wonderful line from simon rattle on a film i watched recently where he said learning with two pianos is great if you just want to conduct two pianos yeah. <laughs> yes and he's, abso he's exactly. absolutely right um exactly so as you just said, during your master's course at the Royal Northern, your teachers were Clark Rundale and Mark Heron. Your biography on your website lists the following names as being teachers, mentors, or you took part in a masterclass with them. Yes, yes. Clark, Mark Heron, Stanislav Skobachevsky, Juanjo Mena, Vasily Petrenko, Jack Van Steen, Andrus Nelsons, and Ed Gardner. That's quite a list. I'm assuming... Yes. I'm assuming that they all offered you so many different and varied pieces of advice in all manner of areas of conducting. Sure. I mean, we'll get to Andres and Ed in a second. Mena and Petrenko, I can explain in one. Um, as part of the course, they we had masterclasses where the local conductors um, would come in and the local orchestras to us in Manchester, of course, with BBC Philharmonic um, and the Halle. 
and the the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic as well, who were not so far away from us. Um, so we had once a year Vasily Petrenko. Um, so I had him once in both years. So once on Vorjak 9 and once on Brahms 2. And I had Mena for Vorjak 9 as well, um, which was also very, very helpful just to have two very different ideas from two of the, the bigger conductors locally. Um, Mark Elder would come in, but he would only work with the junior fellows. But we were allowed as master students to sit in, well, invited and expected, of course, to sit in on all of those master classes. So these three conductors locally formed quite a basis of, of our study there, even though it might just be 10 visits altogether from all of them within one year, it was still valuable to see all of this and to hear how they helped our colleagues and ourselves to grow in, in very many different ways. Some of them were, would base more on technique and some of them would base more on rehearsal technique. Um, Skrovachevsky is one of the most exciting experiences I've had in my life. And um, we had two full days with Skrovachevsky somehow, by some miracle. He was rehearsing with the Halle and we managed to get him a couple of days earlier. Um, he was very fragile in his final years. Um, in fact, I remember after the class, I was nominated to take him back in a taxi, back to the hotel, make sure he got into the reception and then get back to college again afterwards. He was that fragile. Um, he would come to the class we did Schoss 5 with him, which was one of the most valuable pieces that we could do with him. And he would sit at the back looking like he couldn't see anything. And we would even wonder whether he could actually hear anything as well. He was just so frail. And then we would conduct little bits of Shostakovich 5 and he'd just stop you straight away and say, well, look, you didn't give this for the horns and you didn't give that and you didn't give... So this, this, this guy that we just saw so small in the back of the room came with such a wealth of experience and he spotted everything. He just every micro gesture he said but you don't hear the horns in your head you should be thinking already to give the horns this impetus and then there were there was a question about the tempo in the last movement of Shost five and those little increments of tempo of course that Shostakovich puts that you see some conductors really try to push bit by bit by bit um whereas i i do see it as just one longer cellerando of course and he was just hammering that point home. And he said, look, it must be like this. I spoke to Shostakovich and it has to be like this. I was like, okay, okay, okay. Well, this, this is it, you know. Um, this is about as close as we can get right now. Um, so it was really a, a really interesting experience of two days, which felt like two weeks by the end of it, stopping you every bar, every two bars. But always to give you, it wasn't just small nuggets. It was huge wisdoms on these pieces and on conducting technique and, and conducting in general. If I remember correctly, your last year of that master's course, you were, you had been appointed the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra's conducting fellow, the first that they'd ever had. You were spending a lot of time up and down the M6 or on the, on the train, I'm assuming, going between both. I expect that was a very exciting period of your life. It was. Um, it started, actually, my first year of conducting, because of course I still saw Eduardo all the time because he still had a, a conducting, uh, sorry, a cello class at the Northern. So he was always there and he became like family in the end, of course. So I'd always see him and he would, he would always say to me, Alpesh, um, you know, Andres is here this week and he's doing this repertoire. You should really come and see it. Um, and I started slowly coming to see things, um, rehearsals with all sorts of people, but it started with the fascination of this, this crazy new conductor at the CBSO, Andres. Um, and that, that became a, a regular thing. As I started to do that, the management of the CBSO, together with yourself and Eduardo um, and some other members of the orchestra, started to think it would be a good idea to have a young conductor in association with the orchestra. So we together, all of us, created this, this idea of a conducting fellow. Um, and that became my second year of the master's course. So it was, it was hugely valuable where I used the master's course to have my hands-on experience while having every minute free, then driving back to Birmingham from Manchester and watching every rehearsal and concert and recording session and live concert and touring and everything that I could of the CBSO when I wasn't on the course. Um, so that second year of the RNCM was really, really incredible. I mean, there's, there's no, <laughs> I can't, I can't shout it up enough. I was probably in one of the most sought after positions in the world by having this unprecedented access to, to conductors such as Andres Nelson's, which every young conductor wanted access to. 
um, and just seeing what he did, how he did it, and the backstage access with the orchestra and seeing what they thought, how they felt, not only with Andres, but with other conductors, what they liked of different conductors, and also things when uh, we disagreed. And I found this the most exciting part of the job, where you'd watch a rehearsal or a concert and afterwards you'd speak to some of the players and they would come away with the completely the opposite view of what you thought in the hall. Um, and this happened after quite a few concerts, actually, where you'd come out thinking, that was such an exciting concert. But the orchestra would say, yeah, but it was just like this or like that, and this was wrong or that was wrong. And that can happen quite often because there's so many people on stage feeling so many different things. So, I mean, in answer to your question, of course, it was a really exciting time. It was also a highly confusing time <laughs> because you're having so many things from different conductors, of course. Yeah, yeah. And you're trying to find your own identity at the same time, of course. And it all just becomes a big mess. And I, I do remember one class where I was going on a tour and it was Don Juan. And, you know, for any young conductor, we wouldn't expect to conduct it so early on in Korea. Um, and I remember I just said to Mark and Clark at the Northern, please, can we just put this in a piano class just so I can just work my way through the piece? Because the next time I conduct it could be on tour with the, with the CBSO on a sold out concert. Um, and I remember at one point, Mark Heron just stopping me mid-flow with the pianos and just saying, Alpesh, and why are you doing this in two? And I said, oh, just because, you know, I'm trying to match as much of what, what Andres does so that if I have to do it in the concert, it's there. And Mark said, yes, but it just isn't working for you at all. If you have in one bar a particular thing that Andres does, which works for his body or for his, for his gesture, this might be okay. But if you had to do a concert last minute and you did it this way, it's just not going to work for you. So just keep it clear and trust that the orchestra will go with you if you're clear within your own body and your own gesture. And that was quite a, quite a turning point, actually, to think that, okay, I'm absorbing everything but at the same time, just to keep your own language at the same time. Yeah, it's got to be about you. Exactly. While, whilst we're on this subject, I remember telling you, uh, as I've told every assistant conductor after you, make sure you don't just go to the music director's weeks of concerts. Yeah. Make sure you go to the Friday nights and you go to the, the family concerts yes, yes. and you go to uh, the lighter stuff because you yeah. you're going to learn something from watching every conductor not just a music director you're going to learn from every conductor and as you know and as the world needs to know not every orchestra gets on with every conductor and you need to know why no um and I, exactly and i think that's a fundamental thing about being an assistant is finding out from the players in the tq or in the pub afterwards what it was that that certain conductor was doing that rubbed them up the wrong way and got up their noses Yes, I mean, I, I find myself already in so many interviews just repeating that. When people say to me, it's usually the last question in an interview, which says, um, for, young, for other young aspiring conductors, what would your advice be? And it's, it's the sort of million dollar question. But I always say that one of the most valuable things, of course, you must lock yourself in a dark room and you must study your scores and you must do all of this. But if you've got free time and you're just sitting there, why are you sitting there? And I get young conductors come up to me in Italy where, where I have my job there and young conductors say look we enjoy watching your rehearsals and I say to them okay have you been to see all the other conductors as well what how was last week with so-and-so did you watch Mala 5 with so-and-so and I said well no no we just we, we came to yours and we'll come to your next so, but look you should be using every opportunity you can in this I just find myself repeating exactly the advice that you gave to me back then because I know how much I benefit from it and then I always go on to say and also just don't undervalue buying a friend a drink. And it doesn't have to be alcohol. It could be tea and coffee. It could be even water. But just go and speak to people, especially those people with instruments, playing instruments that you don't understand. And you may not want to admit that you don't understand. Mm, yeah, but with yeah. friends, you can always admit this. Go up to a wind player and say, look, what are the difficulties here? Why is this always out of tune? Is it just a, a thing that I've noticed? Or is there a technical thing? How can I help to make things easier for you in this passage? How can I help to make things clearer for you in this passage when you're so far away from me? Um, it's so valuable to do that. And um, so as a string player, if I can speak to brass players and wind players, it's so valuable, so valuable. Mm. So during your time as conducting fellow and then assistant conductor with the CBSO that's a whole three-year period 
which conductors stand out for you as the ones that you learned the most from or were inspired by? Well, Andres, of course, was the biggest inspiration on, on myself and on so many of us in, in this, in the great city of Birmingham. He really cared about the players. That was one thing that stood him out against virtually every other conductor. It really mattered to him what the players thought, which is usually the most dangerous thing for a conductor to think about. You don't, you don't stand on the box to, to have friends. Whereas you also don't stand on the box. The opposite of that is Toscanini and, and sort of showing your place and showing that you are the maestro. But Andres was really the opposite end of this. But this also meant that the orchestra played for him. Everything they, they could do for him, they did for him. But this was only because the musical side of things as well was so strong. He had such a vision. He was so childlike. But I mean this in the best, way, best of ways. Childlike in his energy and the the boundless enthusiasm he had on the box. Um, he was just so, it sounds like I'm talking about someone who's dead, but you know, it was just this, <laughs> this influence that he had and he has still on people, of course. Um, he was a great admirer of the gesture kings of conducting. So Kleiber and uh, Rosasvensky, for example, and often in the breaks of rehearsals, no matter which country we were in with the CBSO, he would be watching videos of Kleiber and say, Alpesh, look at this, look at this, just have a look at this video. Um, and he was, he was such an admirer, which meant that when he did, then came to conducting, everything was about gesture. And where in the beginning, the first two or three years, all of the critics you read of Andres when they're getting used to him was about how crazy he was and how he's using gestures that people have never seen before. After three years or so, nobody mentioned a single thing. They just went on about how his interpretations were on such another level. So free, so fluid, so um, liquid. It, this was just how it worked with him. He made the, the biggest of pieces, Wagner, Bruckner, make sense. And I, I must admit that six years ago, I really didn't like Bruckner. It, it was a language that just didn't agree with me at all. And it was, I still remember, it was one rehearsal with Andres of Bruckner 7, where he turned up and I had to do the beginning of the rehearsal for him actually, because he was delayed. I'd never conducted Bruckner before. Um, and now, because it was so long ago, I can admit that, you know, I could admit that to you. Um, but, but Stephen said to me, you know, it, it, it was part of my job, of course, to be able to stand in for this kind of thing. So I spent the whole night studying two movements of Bruckner just to get through. And Stephen said, look, just, just play through these two movements so the orchestra can, can read it at least. And it was, it was an impossible task. I, I couldn't understand it at all. And even afterwards, it felt like I'd been through 10 car crashes one after another, um, just because of the sheer stress on your mind of trying to make this work. And then Andres came and everything changed. And within 10 bars, I, I felt like I got Bruckner. It was one of these moments that just changes. At the moment, I, Bruckner and Shostakovich are two of the composers I do the most. Um, and this was a big influence from, from Andres because he really, he showed me that this was all about the conductor, that we have to really work hard at home to find a structure. I, I personally believe that Bruckner is, is far too easy to over-rehearse because so much of it should be the vision of the conductor to get from the first bar feeling already the last bar. The more that you work this, the more that you go through it, because usually it's not so technically difficult for the orchestra um, in terms of what they have to play. The, the technical difficulty usually in Bruckner for me comes from the endurance of string players virtually having no break from the beginning to the end. And I think that that just shows how much work that the conductor has to do in their office, in their study, to make this work. And Andres was a genius at this. At the same time, of course, there was um, Ed Gardner, who was principal guest conductor. And still now, when I'm studying Mendelssohn, I go back to his recordings of the Mendelssohn symphonies of the CBSO, which I think are so brilliant in the best of senses. I mean, so, so much light and luminosity in these recordings. I think they're just stunning. I really liked working with Ed at the CBSO because he also knew the, the CBSO really well. He'd been working at the orchestra from well before Andres. He, he knew which buttons to press, of course. And I, I mean, this is a longer conversation to have, that when you know the, the buttons that you must press with an orchestra, do you keep pushing them or do you not? And I think he, he, had, he had a good way of this, that he could get 
very particular with the orchestra, let's say, where he, he knew he needed to get something and how to get it. But then also he knew where he could let the orchestra relax and where he could just let them, let them also go and lift themselves. Also, I was really lucky to see Simon Rattle come back to the orchestra. Um, and this was, I think, one of the most exciting things about watching Simon Rattle work was the way he put pieces together. And this is the one thing that I, I've not seen any conductor do the way that he does it. Um, he did the, the St. Matthew Passion a few years back, and it was, it was just incredible that he, he knew which personnel, which members of the orchestra played in which parts, so that he never had people sitting on stage for no reason. He ended those moments first, then he did a bit from this part, then a bit from that part, and a bit from that part, and then it just was all so calculated. But afterwards, I would speak to the players of the orchestra and they would say, yes, it does seem like we're going from one to another to another, but we're always turning the page, knowing exactly what's on the next page. Yeah, I mean, that is true. I often say, when people ask me about the three music directors I played under before I turned, to, turned yeah. into being a conductor, I will often say that the best rehearser I ever worked with was Simon. He could take a piece apart and put it back together yeah. and everybody knew their role. The best and clearest technique was Zachary because I think his technique is just amazing. Yes, and it's immaculate. Yeah, and yeah. the best concerts I ever played in were with Andrus because of the, as you said, that fluidity and the spontaneity that, yes. that he brought to the table. Yes. Uh, and so with Simon, yeah. yeah, you never, ever, ever felt in a concert at any stage that if you turned over the page, what was going to be on the next page, you knew. You knew exactly, not yes, only was yes, what, what yes. was on the next page, but who you were playing it with. That was the point. Sure, sure, yeah. I think that's the really exciting thing with the CBSO, that they, with those three music directors, they had a journey, and that journey never stopped. Of course, It's, it's so cliche to speak about journeys and all these kind of things, but actually you, you really hear it in the sound of the way that they learn all this repertoire they got, they broaden their repertoire with Rattle and then with, with Sakri just developing the sound and especially the string sound and then going into this fluidity of putting all that together with Andres afterwards. I think you really hear it in the sound even now. After your time with the CBSO, you're off out into the big wide world. Um, did the CBSO give you a lift in getting guest engagements elsewhere? And where were those first engagements? Of course, um, when I was with the CBSO, we already put in a date, of course, um, for my first concerts. And one of the big first concerts with them was Shostakovich's 15th Symphony, which just everything is so cyclic. So I turned that back to the what we spoke about with uh, Petrenko, that the Northern, in my second year, they started a course whereby each of us would get one programme a year where we could assist the RLPO under their music director. Um, and my programme was Shostakovich 15. So I learned the piece and watched all of the rehearsals of uh, Petrenko. And that was a great way to learn a piece which isn't so often done and isn't so often heard. So then we thought it'd be a great way then to do that with the CBSO. And then at the same time, there was a cancellation that happened at BBC Scottish, which was about, I think it was about nine or 10 months before the concert with the CBSO, although the concert with CBSO was already announced. So they, of course, saw that I was conducting that away in the future. And that gave me quite a big step up instantly because they, they were ringing around conductors who had Shoss 15 in their repertoire, of which there were not many. So that was a great concert for me to, to really, you know, take the reins of an orchestra that doesn't know me at all. It's always different when you're stood in front of the orchestra that grew you up or where you're going to another orchestra in your own right and they're seeing you not as an assistant, not as a Birmingham boy, not as from their city, but as a conductor, as a guest conductor. And that was a really important gig for me to get so early on as well. Um, also, as my graduation concert with the, well, it's my exam actually from the Northern Masters course, Back then, it was half a concert with the Manchester Camerata, to which we we invited managers and agents to come and see. So I I thought it would be a bit weird to to write to managers, and also managers get hundreds and hundreds of emails, probably a month, 
probably a day from young conductors and young artists wanting to be represented. So in the end, Stephen Maddock, the chief exec of CBSO, wrote letters to, to agents for me as I was so young and so green back then, um, explaining about how he'd how he'd had me at the CBSO and about my position and what, what that meant. And then some managers came to see and I got an agent on the back of that concert. So again, that was a, that was a link through the CBSO. And um, also I think people see a, an element of trust because the CBSO have always nurtured young talent and have always found conductors. It's always been a great strength of theirs finding successful conductors. I know that from being nurtured yes. from the first time I conducted them. Uh, myself and then they nurtured me and pushed me through and I became assistant conductor from almost from nowhere but you feel that they if they spot something and they're willing to run with it if they spot potential they're willing to run with it whereas yes. some orchestras yeah. maybe don't take that risk I don't know no but I also think that orchestras if they're given the opportunity to help they will and um, of course you'll get some people on the extremes but it's it's quite helpful to have an orchestra who's who are told okay, look, we're going to do this. We're going to have a young conductor. Um, but then, you know, they would appreciate if you gave them some feedback as well and you could help them. And that was really valuable. I think that's been a great thing of myself and the, the, the colleagues that I had after me, the, the following um, assistant conductors, that I think we all really appreciate the fact that we've got this unprecedented access with this great orchestra of watching everything, which is so rare. After initial concerts with the CBSA and then guesting with the BBC Scottish, I guess it wouldn't be long until your agent got you some work in Italy. And, of course, eventually, not so long after that, you become principal conductor of the Philharmonica Arturo Toscanini Parma. How did that happen? How did that uh, materialise? Yeah, it's a very unlikely story because um, in Italy, if I, if if I generalise very greatly, they only really go for conductors and soloists actually, who either have a huge name, somehow they have the money, even though you know they're, they're financially there are problems in Italy, somehow they get these huge names to go to all of the big orchestras and also some of the, the less big orchestras and young Italians. So for a young no-name person to go is very rare and this doesn't happen in Italy, a young no-name foreigner at that. Um, and what happened was a conductor, Kazushi Ono, went ill for a concert and he had a long-standing relationship with, with the orchestra in Parma because he won the Toscanini competition in one of its first outings many years ago. Um, so he, from the moment he won that competition, had a great relationship and then became principal guest conductor at the orchestra following that. So there was a, there was a panic to get someone on two or three days notice. Um, the program was very standard. Schumann Piano Concerto and Eroica. However, both of those pieces are sort of conducting exam kind of pieces with a mm. third movement of the Schumann and every movement of Eroica. Um, of course, principally the first movement, and which I know I've studied alone with you, Mike, so for so many hours way back when, just that piece alone, just that movement alone. Yeah, I, I'm sure you remember me telling you what Zachary Oromo told me. He rather cheekily said to me, Mike, do you get out the first movement in one or in three? And I said, oh, actually a bit of both. And he said, yes, good answer. He said, I've seen yes, somebody... exactly. I've seen somebody conduct this all in one and it doesn't work. And I've seen somebody conduct this yeah. all in three and it doesn't work. Um, so, yeah, it's the first movement to the Eroica is a, is a, a big uh, teaching tool for, with, a, with conductors of a certain standard. Yes, yes. And I've also found the more I do that piece, the more... I vary it with different orchestras as well. Of course, you have a basis. And in, in most of my scores, of course, like yourself, you, you work out where you'll be in three and where you'll be in one. But sometimes there are some moments that with another orchestra, I just feel I have to do something more or something less. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and it's one of those movements that you've just got to be ready for anything. Um, and so I, I had that from studying it so much, um, even though it was a risk. Of course, it was a risk with an orchestra I didn't even know. Um, and the Schumann was then the problem. However, again, I'd assisted it very recently with the with the CBSO and seen it in rehearsal with um, Stephen Huff. And that was sort of fresh in the memory. So um, I didn't have an Italian local manager at that point, but it was the lo- local Italian manager who was doing the rounds in the UK with the emails trying to find someone. They saw a video of me conducting some some things early on. And then they said, look, we can either take 
someone we know, someone old, um, older and more experienced, or we can take our pump on a young conductor in this opportunity. And the great thing about the orchestra in Parma is it's run almost like a British orchestra. I mean, they pay absolutely on time, which would tell you straight away the, the kind of orchestra it is, <laughs> yeah, because there yeah. can be so many problems with this kind of thing in Italy. Um, when they say they pay, they pay. So I could extend that to the whole runnings of the orchestra back then. So they, they took the risk and they were ready to take the risk. And I thought that that was, that was a really nice thing of them to do, because I know many orchestras in Italy who wouldn't have done that, who wouldn't have been quite so ready to do that for a program such as that. Um, so I went along, I did it. And then after the concert, I was offered local management. Um, and that, that began my journey there. The orchestra saw something, of course, in that first concert, and they booked me for two concerts the following season. And then after that, they already made the offer then for um, a principal conductorship. Having worked so extensively now in Parma with your orchestra and also having had a very long and good relationship with the CBSO and also I know with the BBC Scottish, what would you say the biggest differences are in the mentality of the orchestras between Italy and the UK? Yeah, it's it's so different. Um, in my particular orchestra, I've managed to change them a lot, um, but only because they were willing to change. Um, the first year of us working together was really quite difficult because we knew we liked each other, but then I knew what I had to do. So it really meant pushing those buttons, like I said before with Ed Gardner. So actually, I pushed the buttons and I pushed too far. And I, I'd be, I, I'm happy to admit that. But it was only when I'd gone too far that I realized it in, you know, wanting to change things and wanting to make things better. And they were going on this journey, but just gauging how far they could move. The second year then became very easy because we'd done all that work in the first year of really trying to get the discipline down. Um, for example, I said to them, look, if you're going to talk every time I stop, I'm just going to start again. I'm just going to say two, three, go. Um, if you if you are silent when I stop, I will allow all of you, all of the principal players to ask as many questions as they need to me to send things back to the sections, to do all that kind of stuff. This is all fine, but I can't have it both ways. I can't have it that I stop and you all talk. So now they understand that they will go home early if A, they write everything in their parts, which there wasn't an attitude for, where I used to always say to them, look, in England already, the inside players are writing everything in for speed and we get it done fast and they know that of course we may be able to end the rehearsal a couple of minutes early that's not the goal but if we work in a productive way of course we'll get more done quicker and the orchestra now realize that and they they go with that which is really really good and i i really appreciate that work that they've done um but the biggest the biggest difference aside from the discipline side of things oh sorry i should also say that the most the most frustrating thing now is because I've trained the orchestra in Parma to be like this and they now are very happy to work in this way. Um, when I then go to other orchestras in Italy, it's not always the same. So it can be easier to get frustrated in other places. But um, hey-ho, this is yeah. how it is. Um, but um, the sound is very different. From the opera side of things, there's a passion that they have. There's a, there's a Mediterranean passion, let's say, which they bring to everything of... I never thought that Tchaikovsky 6 would have been as exciting as it was with my orchestra in Parma. There, I just thought, is it is it a risk to go to an opera, an Italian opera orchestra in the region of Verdi and do Tchaik 6? But they played the socks off it because they really get that kind of over-the-top indulgence of sound. And that is so easy to achieve. And this is something that I'll always take from that orchestra, the willingness that they have to make music with their left hands going crazy and with their hearts actually involved in the music. They really want to play. Um, another side effect of that is that I, when I started in Italy, many friends of mine said, look, many of the orchestras there have been used to being treated really badly with dictator type conductors. And you only have to look at some principal conductors to understand that straight away of Italy and of the past in Italy. Um, so if you go to an orchestra with respect and with some interesting musical ideas, they'll do anything for you. And it, it takes a while because you think that there's a hard edge there. It's not a hard edge. They're just really passionate. In the first 
ever rehearsals I done in, did in Italy, um, there was a moment, for example, in Parma where the, fir- the leader stood up and the first trumpet stood up and they started shouting at each other. I said, is everything okay? When I didn't understand a word of Italian. And the leader said, no, no, it's okay. He's now just going to play a little bit quieter. and We're going to play more. I was like, oh, okay, okay. And there was another, another time where the principal viola walked during the rehearsal across to the leader. They were shouting about something. And I just thought, okay, what's going on? And then afterwards, I said to me, is everything okay? And she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just going to do a down bow and they're just going to do an up bow now. So it's okay. It's all sorted. But it's just that passion that they, that they have to get there, which was a bit of a shock at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I understand that. I have worked in Buenos Aires in Argentina many times now. And often similar things will happen there. Um, and, you know, I know that you speak now pretty fluent Italian. Yes, yes. And I speak very, very little Spanish, enough to rehearse, but not conversational. And I've had instances where people are sort of shouting to, to each other across the orchestra. And it's, it's always in a very positive way. Um, what's interesting, last, last time I was there, I went out for a meal with the, the assistant conductor of the orchestra in Buenos Aires that I was working with. And he said to me, he said, you know, you had a stroke of genius on the first day. And I said, oh, really? What was that? He said, you asked for a player name list and you've started speaking to them and addressing them by their names. He said, nobody does that here. And because you've done that, they're now listening to you and they're not talking when you stop conducting. And it's amazing sometimes what a simple thing that you would just do every week of your working life you go to a certain place and they and they're amazed by it and and they suddenly there's a respect for you and it can be something as simple as diego can you do this rather than mr first trumpet can you do this so one of the first moments where i realized actually you were speaking about my italian that i really had to learn it properly was a two-month period i had in cagliari where i was doing an opera i was doing turandot my first opera actually and after two months we had a symphonic program just to finish the opera period we just had a symphonic at the end of it all and I was singing a passage at the orchestra and I, you know, every conductor has a different syllable, of course, where they sing and some could be da-da-da-da or da 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 I was, I was singing this passage and they, they said, they, they just kept laughing. And I said, look, for two months, you've always been laughing when I've been singing at you. And they say, I just said, why? I just want to know. And the leader just couldn't, couldn't stop for fits of giggles. And then he just said to me, Maestro, no one wanted to tell you. But you've been singing at us all, all for two months of pompin, 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 and this word in Italian means it's 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 a sexual act, and so so you've basically <laughs> been singing over us this word for two months, which means something not quite so so suitable for a rehearsal, let's say. When it comes to markings, I think I know that you mark your scores like I do, but. Maybe that's because I had a heavy influence on your marking system when, when you started. But how do you go about learning a new score? Yeah, that's not changed, actually. I mean, the, the way that I mark is really set. I have found recently that I've, there have been a couple of scores that I did very early on, like Rack 2, um, uh, the symphony. Um, and I bought a brand new score the last time I did it a few months ago because it was so obliterated because I write so much in my score. But now I'm realizing that the things I've done in the last two or three years, I can live with. And I have a way that I do it now that I can read the score easily and still have all the information that I've thought about. Um, I do much the same way as I always did. I mean, I go through for the first time um, just marking basic things, just doing an overall sort of first pass. I'm doing I'm learning Rheingold at the moment. Um, And that's as an opera, it's so much so many more passes you have to do as it were but the first pass is always the same just an initial then I start thinking about beats but I the more I've worked the more I've got through trees and trees worth of post-it notes so I find that now I don't write things in straight away even beats like two or four I just sometimes if there's any hesitation I put a post-it note with a question mark to myself um, of what to do and then as the passes as I go through more and more times a score of course an idea firms up in your head but I never feel like committing it to red or blue in the score nowadays until I'm really sure blue always so dynamics of course I can and articulations I can commit to straight away when I know um, but beats rallentandos rubati things like this sometimes they require time um, and there's still some pieces that I've conducted even 10 times already and it gets to 
a concert and I still have post-it notes in my score. And if I have a post-it note, I, people ask me in the audience, I say, what are your post-it notes in your scores? I say, they're just questions to myself. So sometimes it could be a piano forte. Sometimes it could be, am I phrasing to this bar or that bar? And they're questions that I've still not decided what I prefer. I always make a decision, of course, in the concert um, or in the rehearsals. And with some orchestras, it's a different point. Some orchestras is a completely different point altogether again. But I think that this keeps me thinking all the time. At the beginning, I thought I always had to have the answers. Alpesh, every conductor at the end of the podcast has the chance to answer my 10 questions, the same 10 questions. And so if you don't mind, I'm going to start with question one. What sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? The sound that I love, I mean, if you know me at all, you'll know that I'm a fine wine lover. And there's nothing more satisfying than getting a great wine out the cellar, putting it on the table. And then the moment that that cork actually leaves the bottle before you're about to have a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old wine or a 50-year-old wine, it doesn't matter. It's that sound of a cork just slowly popping out of a red wine bottle that you know you're just going to be in heaven for the next two hours or three hours. How, it depends how fast you drink, I guess. The sound I hate, gosh, um, it's got to be the sound of an email notification because it means I've got to do boring work. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Um, I really like fresh air because in, in our job, as you know, we're just always going from hotel to flight. And I mean, now that we're all stuck at home, um, we can actually appreciate going throughout our one daily form of exercise and getting some fresh air, which is, it's just such a change of pace and such a nice thing to just be able to go outside and get air. So actually, I, my two favourite places to go are actually in, in the UK, and Snowdonia and the lakes. They're just two places that I can actually switch off and I can never switch off if, if anybody knows me well. It's, it, the mind is always thinking about something and those two places are two places where I can just breathe out and enjoy my surroundings. Um, I do love being around water and mountains, so both of those places are just gorgeous. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Oh, we already mentioned probably all of them. But, um, Kleiber and Rosnozvensky. Those two are absolute gods. And I mean, Kleiber, of course, we all know, but Rosnozvensky was a conductor that you introduced me to in my lessons, actually, way back when. Um, and just geniuses of gesture, which must be the most important thing of our job, no matter what we have to show, be a phrase, a direction, an articulation, everything of what we do is gesture because we cannot open our mouths um, when we work in concert. Um, Skromachevsky, I must mention as well, those, those sessions that I had, um, he was just so inspiring. When you hear his Shostakovich, you can hear back to those moments, those moments that affected a particular people, uh, compositions, all of the symphonies of Shostakovich, not just showing colour, but actually emotions of a whole people of Russia and what they went through. And I, I really like how, how it is in Skowaczewski's hands. It really speaks so clearly to us. Rosyzvensky, for me, is the master of the upbeat. So many conductors are obsessed with the downbeat, but if you don't give a clear upbeat, yes. you're sunk. He would often give an upbeat and not even ever give a downbeat because the upbeat was so yes. clear. Yeah, an absolute master. And who would be a favourite current conductor? Uh, I, th I think it's very repertoire specific, of course. There's some, con some conductors I go to for specific things and also some conductors that I wouldn't necessarily expect to go to for some repertoire. For example, um, La Mer. I, I, I find it so difficult to find a truly great recording of La Mer, but hearing it in Gergiev's hands, made me for the first time sit up and listen to La Mer with a new energy. There's something about his energy of the fast moving fingers that really allows La Mer to breathe like the sea. And I mean, a conductor that I wouldn't consider going to for that kind of thing necessarily, maybe. And then of course, I must mention Andres, of course, is probably my favorite um, for, for most things. I just, we spoke about him before, but it's that fluidity and that energy and the excitement that he forms, not only for the orchestra, but also also for the audience, where every single person in the room, it's 
I mean, you've been in fast, you've been in so many concerts, I'm sure, where you think, who the hell is this conductor at the front? And the orchestra play as they would play. Um, but the audience in the end, they're rapturous and they think it was great. But it's rare to have where the orchestra love the conductor and the audience love the conductor. And it's through their music making that this happens. And I think this is really, really exciting. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Gosh, okay. So um, Turandot was, because it was the first opera I did, and it's a juggernaut of an opera. So just the sheer, just for the sheer forces and for doing my first opera, it was everything added in one that made that really difficult. Um, Mozart, I think is, if I had to give you one answer, Mozart would be the most difficult. I find Mozart always difficult. It's music that is of such a level that needs maturity. And it's something that I've always tried to do and always felt that it got in the way of. And it's now actually a composer that I don't program ever. I only program concertos of Mozart, but symphonies and overtures, I completely cut out about three years ago because I, I just realized it wasn't working for me at all. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Um, oh God, I'm gonna sound like a snowflake, but um, iPad and iPhone, it's just, it's only to say that what we do is so solitary so all of my friends are sort of strung around different cities and different countries. And if I really had to say one thing that I'd struggle without, in particular, it really would be my phone because I always feel close to people. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Uh, one thing that I've changed personally is to be able to say no more. At the beginning of the career, you feel you have to do things or you should do things. And the more I work, the more I say no. And I think that should be something that's ingrained in every young conductor more, that just don't take the gig, just don't do it. If it's not right, you know, it's, and orchestras, I find more and more nowadays, they're all respecting it so much. There've been important orchestras who have offered me dates um, in say in the last six or 12 months. And I just say through my management very politely, um, I just feel that this repertoire won't be right for me, especially to make my debut with the orchestra, but I really, would like to come to you so let's speak in 12 months time again for the following season if we can if we can make it work that way what profession other than your own would you like to attempt that's an easy one pilot always i had a best friend when i was six years old and all through primary school we had this obsession with planes and i had this other obsession with music as well i of course made my career in in music and he is now a pilot. So I feel that from both of us, we, we both found those, those two different directions. Um, aside from that, I'm a, I'm a real fanatic right now for niche fragrances. I've started building up quite a, quite a collection of um, niche aftershaves and perfumes. And I'd quite like to make a really good perfume. I always liken music to being like a curry because I, I cook curries a lot. And it's that balancing of about 20 or 30 ingredients I think it's what we have to do in real time on the box as well. There's so many ingredients in front of us, so many players, and trying to mould them into one tasty curry in the end. I'd love to do that with a fragrance too. If the world were to end tonight, what would your choice of final meal and drink be? Well, I was thinking about, I, I went for a walk earlier, knowing that you were going to ask me this question. And initially, the first thing that came to mind was this restaurant in Florence um, called Perseus. And they are on TripAdvisor, if you ever go to Florence, um, if you're searching for, for a real Fiorentine steak, um, they're sort of number one, they're right up there. And they are just incredible. You go there, you see these huge hunks of meat just hanging as you walk in. And the only way to get through all of that meat is to have a fantastic red wine, a good Tignanello or a, a Luce, a nice, good, fine Italian red wine. But, Actually, if I had to say really my drink, my actual drink would be dry martini. I mean, if you have a good barman who knows what they're doing, throwing out the vermouth, of course, before you put the gin in the glass, and then a twist of lemon and always stirred, not shaken, a good dry martini. Well, Alpesh, an absolute pleasure, as it has been over the years, to have a, a good long chat to you. And thank you very much. And I hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time we meet a conductor who first came to prominence after winning the Leeds Conducting Competition. He has held positions in Europe, 
the United Kingdom and Japan and is currently music director of English National Opera. Until then, bye bye.